system. All right, so this is going to be our Session Zero summary episode. Uh, we figured we can give some insight uh, into the process that we used as a group to prepare for the campaign. Uh, we're going to include some of the tools that we use for collaborative world building, uh, some rule modifications we looked into. Um, we're hoping uh, the episode will be um, useful, uh, might be a good example of things you can include in your own session zero if you want to help spice up your world building or get some buy-in from your fellow players but it's not going to be critically important to enjoying or understanding the show if this doesn't sound like an episode that you'd be all that interested in feel free to skip it all right so i think the first thing we want to talk about is some of the changes to the rules that we're going to be doing right out of the gate um, and I think we're going to narrow it down to just the one, which is going to be the change made to Inspiration. Um, our version of Inspiration is basically going to be the closest thing you guys are going to get to plot armor. Um, we've taken Inspiration from Savage Worlds and have it kind of worked like a, a Benny combined with if you were to draw a Joker on your turn. Uh, for those unfamiliar... We're going to basically make it so that you can have as much inspiration as you want banked up, and you can spend inspiration at any time to re-roll any die that you want. Um, you don't have to take the new result, you can choose to keep the old one, and also when you spend that inspiration, you get to add your proficiency bonus to the result of either die, of either check. Um... Basically, this super inspiration is going to be usable on any kind of roll or check, uh, namely death saves. Um, so I don't have to worry about giving you guys super plot armor. If you die anyway, even through having super inspiration, then it was just meant to be. We'll just have to make a new <laughs> character for you at that point. The fates have spoken. Exactly. So I think that's the only change that we're going to actually stick to. Um... I'm a little. I was a little wary of death saves, um, kind of the way they work at base. Uh, so you might notice as we play that uh, I don't have the DM style to just go after players while they're down and on the ground. So you might notice some wonky things going on with me not going for the throat with downed players and death saves and all that. But that's all subject to change as we move along, depending on what we want to change. And depending on if somebody does something stupid and kind of deserves it. True. <laughs> Alright, so now that we've gone over the those slight rules things, um, we want to talk about some of the goals that we want to set for how we're going to choose to approach to play this campaign. Um, one thing that we already talked about and have all done a pretty good job of in practice is having a specific uh, character voice. Uh, at least trying to make an attempt to have a character voice that's distinct from your own speaking voice so that, you know, not only for each other's sake, but for anyone listening, they can tell when you're talking as yourself versus as your character. That's the goal. Uh, another thing we're going to try to be uh, cognizant of doing as often as possible is to describe what a character is doing, not what skill or attack we're using. So, like, instead of saying, I walk up and attack, or I want to roll perception, 
um, we're going to try to use our words to paint a picture um, to kind of help the podcast be more listenable and to kind of all buy into the fiction a little better. Um, we might describe an attack, you know, in a few sentences rather than just saying, I swing my axe. Or we might, um, instead of saying I roll perception, you know, my character squints their eyes and uses a hand to shield, you know, the sun as I check the tree line for any enemy, something like that. There's an arrow in your face now. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Bamf! Surprise. Alright, so I guess we're going to jump right over to world building. Um, when we built this world together, before we knew that we were going to be playing this campaign... Um, the way we decided to do it um, was to have everybody contribute an equal amount of just stuff. Um, and everyone, all the players were incentivized um, with a reward of inspiration uh, since we changed that rule so that you can stock it up instead of just having it or not. Um, we were able to offer, you know, a big pile of starting inspiration for the people that really contributed, which turned out to be everyone, because you guys are awesome. Um, <laughs> can somebody remind me how many inspiration points that is? Because I never added it to my character sheet. Um, I have a running total, but it doesn't matter, because everyone has the same amount, and I believe that's seven, which is just a huge buffer. Um yeah. to get you guys going. I wouldn't say use it liberally because you do you don't want to find yourself making death saves and have none left. But I'd say definitely don't be shy with it, especially early on when things are tough. Um you also don't want to wait until you're at death saves and, you know, then use them. Because if there's, you know, it could not only be more interesting for you to succeed and prevent yourself from getting in death saves in the first place, it could also actually be mechanically better to avoid going down at all rather than banking all your inspiration just for death saves okay so um during the world building thing uh the way it worked was i asked everybody to create two gods for the pantheon uh, along with their uh domain i guess is the best way to put it sort of what they are the god of or you know the few things that they are um, the reward was one inspiration for creating the gods, and then a bonus inspiration if you included a few paragraphs of lore for each god. Um, I asked you guys to create a continent for the world, uh, just real simple, give it a name and a few sentences, and that was one inspiration. And then a bonus inspiration if you included you know, some more details about the continent, you know, wars, any kind of conflicts, um, you know, diseases, food shortages, stuff like that, whatever. Um, and then there was creating a capital city for your continent, um, where you name it and the person in charge, you get one inspiration. You got a bonus inspiration if you included a few paragraphs about, like, the different districts in the city and a prominent figure in each district to kind of help us flesh out the world before we really jumped into it. There was also one inspiration for coming up with a myth or folk tale um, that has something to do with the continent you created, um, like a big like Genesis tale, you know, why does it rain, or, you know, who created the giant river that spans your continent, stuff like that. Um, so that was what we asked from everybody. 
and that does total up to seven. So everyone is going to be starting with seven inspiration because of the contributions that you guys all made to building the setting in the first place. Um, first, we're going to get into just some basic details that we've kind of established about the place. Uh, the name of this world is Jendul. It is not spherical. It's more like a large dinner plate. Uh, at the edge of the plate, we have massive waterfalls, um, but they kind of defy gravity, and they flow up from the bottom of the plate, uh, kind of filling up the oceans along the edge of the world and flowing in back towards the center of the plate. The pantheon of the world has been shrinking for a long time. The gods age and tire, uh, then they choose another god to pair with, and they create a single new offspring uh, with most of the powers of each parent. Um, but sometimes when the gods pair off and do this, random powers get lost. And that's why all of our domains, uh, when we get to that section, are kind of erratic. Just a random grab bag of stuff sometimes. We also have the waters of the ocean have been changing for as long as anyone can remember. Uh, every generation, the waters take on a slightly greener hue. It's a very gradual change, um, but there are certain museums around the world that have... Uh, tanks on display from different eras and you can clearly see the water just getting greener as time goes on. It's basically known to scholars as emeraldization just the green, the turning green of the water. That's just kind of a general mystery that we can get into as we play more. Um, there isn't any kind of sun or moon or stars in the sky. The sky just kind of lights up in the morning and goes dark at night. Um, and there's about an hour of dim light in between each time this happens. Um, so there isn't going to be any kind of um, navigating by the stars. Uh, the sun isn't going to rise or set. There's going to be no moon. Uh, it's going to be really weird. And it's going to be something we have to keep in mind when, you know, those are things we all take for granted. Uh, it's going to be kind of a weird touch to have. And keep in mind what kind of interesting results we're going to have, uh, you know as an effect of that. So I guess now we can get into the specific land masses um, that we all created. So we're going to start with the continents that we each made. Um, I'm going to do mine last since we're going to start the campaign there so we have more details fleshed out about it since we're going to be more immediately you know starting there. And we'll start with the one that Ricky added. Uh, my main continent is uh, I named it Ogorod. Uh, it is the closest to uh, the location of my myth. Uh, get to that in a minute. It's the homeland of the deity, which my character is. It's my our, uh, our homebrew version of the Asimar. And it's split into kind of four big zones of uh, almost different weather or it's kind of like a giant safari. Yeah, biomes. It's kind of like a giant safari made by the goddess. Um, and they call it the Great Mother's Gardens. There's a forest to the east, jungle to the north, swamp to the west, and then the south is just always winter. And the deity just wander around, sort of tending to the plant life and wildlife in this zone while keeping it wild, like just a race of park rangers. <laughs> um, on the northeast tip of it is a little peninsula which has the only actual city, which is the capital port city of Rodit. Um, 
wrote it is a big port. Every single inch of it that is shore is now docks. None of it's left, just beach. Uh, and the inland section is all residents and shops, tourist traps, houses, whatever they could fit in there. The three main districts are uh, the Dainty Fishermen, Foreign Fishermen, and the Salvagers. They each have their own little section of the uh, residence area. Uh, the Dainty Fishermen are fish rather close to the shore overall, just enough to feed the population of the island and not much else. The Foreign Sailors... Uh, go out into dangerous waters and sell their haul as exotic fish in on other continents. And the salvagers go into the incredibly dangerous waters right next to the other island I'll get to uh, and skirt the edge of the whirlpools that are always around that island and trawl for scrap of other shipwrecks uh, uh, that are a lot of the time other salvagers that failed and try <laughs> to... Uh, oh, and others are really old ships. And we'll just try to find stuff that they can sell as souvenirs or treasure or whatever else. Since I've been skirting around this island, I might as well jump to my myth, which is centered around it. That island that is a short ways away uh, from Rodot, in the middle of this just constant uh, storm of whirlpools and thunder, uh, I named Reikai. It is a mostly barren island with an enormous stone gate in the middle where it is said that the gods first stepped foot into the realm from. And their entrance and just all of the power involved in the original set of gods is what just destroyed the sea and air around it and created those permanent storms and makes it impossible for mortals to reach as far as they're aware. Uh... A long time before the setting actually is currently going on is what is called the Age of the Scourge, where a bunch of just, like, uh, horrible abominations, Cthulian creatures, and things like that, as well as necromancers. Uh, uh, not, I didn't put, I just put inhuman necromancers, but yeah, just crazy sorcerers dealing in horrible magic, and their minions came through and just waged war on the world and lasted like a century before all the nations worked together and sent a bunch of warships to try to take them out at the source and that's where most of the salvagers are looking for is those old ships and in the end just one ship made it through mm. of a few mages one priest and a single paladin to guard them made it through into the gate where all of the magic users did everything they could to power up that one warrior to guard the gate forever and turned him into a giant gar stone golem made of obsidian where he still stands and there is a, a group of paladins now that uh, sort of act in his name to try to carry it on and to be ready with replacements if ever he falls and the scourge begins again. Which is the order that my character's going up with. Hell yeah. I think you <laughs> earned every bit of that inspiration, buddy. That is a in-depth thing that's well uh, stitched together. Um, Alright, sweet. So that was a lot of stuff from Ricky. We're gonna go to Dolph and he's gonna tell us about the continent that he created. Okay, uh, the continent that I made was um, an uh, island home called uh, Rav, and the capital city is uh, Orzo, where they uh, 
were um, the people there, they called themselves Pastonians. Um, and they built a man-made uh, beer volcano and grew spaghetti noodle trees. <laughs> um, Pastonian sorcerers uh, keep the beer volcano flowing with a, a rare ravioli rock found ages ago. Um, many forms of uh, pasta foliage uh, uh, grew around the rock, such as uh, farfell bushes and rigatoni leaves. It would be fair if you were ever starving. You could just eat to trees. Wait, wait. Pasta foliage. <laughs> oh Did you not God, catch that part okay, before? Okay. <laughs> no, no. This is the Love first right, example of, of the, the Shrek inspiration <laughs> of this setting. <laughs> Many, uh, many, many believed to become closer to the god that they would replace wounded uh, body parts with a special type of living pasta. Their main <laughs> export is beer. They have a frat house style go- government, and uh, hazing is a common rite of passage. I think we should uh, pause and kind of expand on that a bit. Because you said frat house style government, like we were all just going to know what that means. I have never been in a frat house. Okay, okay. I just want to talk about that. <laughs> so what would be an example of this? Like whoever chugs the most beer is king now? Yes. Okay, that uh, pretty much sums it up. <laughs> I think that's all we need to know. Frat house style government. I love it. Uh, to, this is a... I love this place because... It shows you that you don't have to take yourself too seriously when you're world building. Everybody can throw in any kind of crazy idea that they want, and it's on to uh, it's up to us as players and me as the GM to take this kind of silly, um, fun-based thing and try to make some good stories out of it. And you know, having pasta trees and people with artificial limbs that are made of living pasta is just going to be like some more fun tools in the toolbox for us while we're playing around in the world. Every Friday, they have a huge festival in honor of their god, and the entire continent is ruled over by a game uh, by a guy named Mario Romano. They have a ceremony to elect a new leader every time the old one dies. Um, a new one is decided by who can ingest the most beer without passing out or dying. <laughs> Do they play beer pong to celebrate? Yes. It's just a giant um, house. Um, so, uh, uh, <laughs> and the very last thing is that uh, some of the more deeply religious uh, Postonians mistakenly believe the world is a fear because in their eyes it was created uh, by their god and thus was once a giant meatball. <laughs> I forgot about the reverse flat earth. Um, I we all kind of created we all created two gods for the pantheon, uh, but Dolph, you actually created a third because we decided that this this crazy pasta god was not part of the normal um, pantheon. Like he's sort of a, like a weird uh, phenomenon that kind of spouted out of nowhere, and, and it's just people his believed own thing. It. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about that god real quick? Ah uh, yes, good old uh, Chugetti, who is the god of uh, beer and pasta. He is very jovial and usually does not concern himself with the politics of the uh, normal pantheon, unless absolutely necessary. Um, he instead takes an interest in mortal parties and festivals 
typically blessing uh, beer that magically puts people to a better mood, but at the cost of making the drink way more alcoholic. Um, <laughs> he sometimes takes on a mortal form and hides amongst the crowds during festivities to participate in the fun. Uh, Chugetti was once a mortal man until one day the rare, uh, the rare ravioli rock uh, landed near him while he was super <laughs> wasted. He was so he was so inebriated. He decided to take a bite of the strange rock, and in doing so, uh, granted him his godly powers. Uh, do you remember where that rock is now? Do Do we ever figure out what happened to the ravioli rock that turned this man <laughs> into a god? Yeah, we put it uh um in the capital city, and they used it to keep the beer volcano flowing. Ah, yes, that's what powers the beer volcano, of course. So he's just this world's Bacchus, basically. So good. (laughs) Yep. He's the god of tits and wine. Also, quick aside, when when Jesse asked if they play beer pong, my first thought was, do they do it with meatballs? (laughs) Because they're also possible. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so nasty. Yes, yes, they do. Yep. (laughs) Oh, gee. Yes. You'd have to be so drunk you know? not to care about that one. All right, I think that pretty much covers. Uh, what, can you give us the name of that continent again, Dolph? Uh, Rav. Rav. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of just an island continent, right? Yep. And the capital city was what again? Orzo. 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 Awesome. Rav and Orzo. The awesomest place on <laughs> this whole setting. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to go over to Jesse. Um, go, why don't you go ahead and tell us about the continent you created and its capital and all that good stuff. Absolutely. So the continent that I created is called Ubris. Uh, pronounced kind of like hubris, but without the H. It takes up nearly a full quarter of the world plate. It is a vast continent with multiple biomes. A a snowy mountain, a series of beaches, a small forest. Although the majority of the continent is made up of low hills and miles upon miles of just green, flat plain, plains lands. And the main race that inhabits this continent are the hound folk. That is a homebrew race of dog um, people. They are very nomadic, so they don't really settle in cities and towns very often, at least as a whole. Like, you get, obviously, individuals. Um, But for the most part, hound folk are typically on the move. There are skirmishes between different clans over things like hunting grounds or matters of pride, but they don't have, like, the hound folk are too nice. They don't really do war, per se. Um, for the most part those clans live and trade harmoniously they're plenty friendly to the other races who inhabit and visit Ubras. I mean they're dogs um, they're all the goodest boy they're all the goodest boys and goodest so no one really knows how many clans of Houndfolk exist or where they all go because you certainly do not see them all Uh, when you're just wandering about the plains. You see a bunch, you know, a lot of little hills and valleys are are dotted with some of their temporary camps, but you never get a full picture. They are never out in great numbers. 
Uh, clans average anywhere from 30 to 50 members at any one time. Uh, anything bigger than that, they tend to break into separate groups, go their separate ways to form more and more and more clans. There are rumors of forest particular and mountain particular clans of hound folks, but nobody's really proven that such a thing exists. Um, and the plains hound folk are just like, haha, that's not real. No hound folk would willingly live where it's so <laughs> cold or so enclosed like that. Ha ha ha. Uh, hound folk often tell stories around their campfires to pass the time after darkness sets in. One such tale tells of a clan of feral hound folk called the Bonro who only prowl the plains at night and feed on lone travelers or children who stray too far from their mothers. You never hear the Bonro coming, not until their hot snuffling breaths are at the back of your neck. They are, however, said to be preceded by a foul, musty odor, as though they've been buried or caked with wet soil and dead grass. Strangely enough, there are often unnatural sounds and unexplained disappearances that happen on plains between Lenaris and other smaller settlements. Uh, those who have gone alone to investigate are never heard from again. Groups of any size simply never seem to experience anything out of the ordinary. For the record, um, Bonro are rumored to be similar to what we know as coyotes. Yes, the capital city of Ubris is called Lonaris. It is predominantly populated by humans, uh, contrary to the rest of the inhabitants of Ubris, but kind of makes sense since they don't really make cities and towns, so it wouldn't exist without humans. Uh, Lonaris does sit at the southernmost edge of the continent, making it basically a port city. And like the other cities we talked about, Lenaris is basically broken down into districts. You have the docks, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is the home to the sailors, laborers needed for any port city to thrive. Um, if you need to find someone or something on the docks, just ask for Fred Harbor. He's a mystery to most, but if you say his name in the right ears, you'll find him, well, or he'll find you. Uh, the belt is located near the docks and is basically the red light district. Um, all the bars and brothels in town are in the belt. Um, while the district hosts something like 10 different brothels, Madame Marina is the woman behind them all. Her main establishment is the Crimson Lady. That's where the more well-to-do gentlemen and ladies uh, can enjoy all sorts of pleasures. <laughs> Um, Madame Marina oversees all of the red light district, and anyone who crosses her often disappears. The home makes up the majority of the rest of the city and is the most densely populated. Markets, theaters, restaurants, residences are all found in the streets of the home. If you aren't a poor schmo or a rich fist, you live in the home. Uh, the last district is the hand. Uh, that is an enclosed portion of the city, farthest from the docks and the water. No one is allowed into the hand unless by special invitation or buying their way in. And as we kind of mentioned, residents of the hand are referred to as rich fists because the hand never seems to open 
and the weight of its influence is sometimes felt to crush the rest of the city. The hand and therefore Linares is ruled over by General Mooring. No one knows what he's the general of, and many speculate he simply gave himself the title to feel more important. <laughs> Nevertheless, he's respected and listened to by everyone else in the hand, and that makes him basically the ruler over all of Linares. Very nice. I like the names of the districts. They're pretty creative. I, I had to do my best with the names because I know the city and the continent itself are basically super generic. <laughs> Which is something we needed at the time because um, we have like crazy ass pasta continents <laughs> going on. Right. And giant zoo continents. So having a generic fantasy continent was great. Exactly what we needed. All right. Next, we are going to go to Marie. Oh, me? Oh, no. Yeah. Tell us about your uh, continent and the capital city. Kiskenfell itself is a, basically an Australian-shaped continent, like circular in shape, but just like far off enough that it's in more of a tropical climate. The thing that makes that area so unique is it's the ocean is just low enough that the coral reef actually were able to like grow out of the ocean. And over the, as it grew, it collected like other seeds and whatnot and just hybridized with the trees and it just turned into this huge lush jungle area full of coral. All right. What do you remember mm -hmm. about the continent or the capital? I'm sorry. Because of how far off Kiskenfell is, they behave in more of a tribal setting, so it's like a farming community that functions both on the ground where the water is and, like, mostly up in the trees, so if you wanted to, like, go into the city proper, you'd have to basically climb this ladder because all of the uh, connecting houses and buildings are linked into the, uh, linked into the trees. Oh, yeah. The capital is called Live. All right. Um, let's go ahead and go over to Tony, and he will tell us about the continent that he created. All right. The continent that I created is called the Spire. The Spire itself is a relatively small continent on, like, its square footage, essentially. Um, it, it's... It's not tiny, but compared to some of the others, it's a lot smaller. But it's very tall. Um, the center of the spire is a, a, a mountain, just a giant spike of a mountain that reaches up higher than any mortal has ever been, ever been able to climb. Um, and it is said that the top of that mountain is where the body of the dragon goddess, um, that's her final resting place. Anyways, this island is not very large and not very hospitable. There are things that live there, however. Mostly megafauna, so like giant scorpions, dinosaur-type creatures, big things, and then really little stuff that is disproportionately deadly. Um, so like venomous rats and things like that. The people that come from this continent are known as the Draken. 
it's our variation of the Dragonborn because I think the name Dragonborn is uninteresting and stupid. Just always confuses me because of Skyrim. Not that Draken is... Right? Tell yeah, us how you that... really feel, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> not that Draken is actually better, but it sounds like a name rather than, like, a, a bad title that humans gave to these people. I completely agree. Dragonborn's um, your slave name. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it kind of sounds like that to me. Um, and so I just came up with a name that sounded vaguely draconic, and and said that this is like their name. Maybe the humans call them Dragonborn as a derogatory thing or something. I don't know, but they come from this continent. Um, and. Because their homeland is not very hospitable and also not very large, uh, they very early on started um, expanding out into the surrounding ocean and like looking for more uh, places to go and settle down and explore. And they they were probably one of the first outside of maybe the Tritons to actually like go out from their homelands? Uh, interestingly enough, the Tritons um, only recently came out from under the water to start messing with the overworld. Like, it was it was so in, ingrained in their nature that the overworld was for lesser beings uh, that it took, like, you ah. know, 500 years ago or so, they actually started coming up to conquer the world to assert their dominance over it rather than just avoid it because, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's for imminent domain. Everything belongs to the Tritons. Yeah, I, I know that they they have been um, explorers for like, like they learned to explore before they learned to do a lot of things. Like, for example, I, am, I envision that they didn't learn how to to make fire with tools until after they learned to sail because as dragon people some of them can just breathe fire right right um so why learn when your blacksmith can just light his forge by blowing on it um so they they tended to be very um, like wanderlusty explorers and their civilization eventually coalesced back around the island of the spire as those ships started to lose their seaworthiness they would come back to the island and they would attach themselves to the, the island and and like that's basically where like an older Draken would retire is their their ship would become like their house attached to the island. Over the course of centuries of this, the island has built out a giant like mega city of like ships that have been attached and then like things built between them and they've been reinforced and pillars have been driven down into the ocean floor to like to stabilize everything um 
And so there's only one city in the spire and it completely encircles the island. Um, and they just call it the mooring because any further delineation for the whole thing really isn't relevant. There are a lot of districts in there because it's huge. Um, I actually was going to point this out earlier. I shouldn't have had as much inspiration because I did not detail um, all of the districts and any people in my city, but I'm working on uh, a much more thorough breakdown of it because I wanted to run Blades of the Dark here. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. It, I've... So I'll need a lot of NPCs, factions, all that kind of stuff. Right. It, it feels um, like the mooring would almost be like the districts would just be increasingly larger rings, like different eras, you know, growing out. There's going to the be center. some of... There's some of that, but there's also, like, some some sections that are based on, like, family groupings. So, like, bloodlines have clustered together. So, like, this section of the ring is all one family, but then there's the stratifications of, like, generational attachments as well. Makes sense. Um, and then, obviously, not everyone who moored their ships there still lives there because they've died of old age and stuff um so there are ships that that have been that like there are younger people living in like the inner rings where like the oldest boats are so it gets kind of weird there too all right that leaves me so we're going to talk about uh the starting area where we're going to be starting the campaign uh it's called the sifter isles otherwise known as Cabrillo. Um, it's basically a huge mega archipelago located in the dead center of the world map, our big flat world. Um, the main inhabitants there are Triton, which are basically uh, the D&D equivalent of merfolk. Um, they emerged from the ocean about 500 years ago, um, and they decided to start their uh, overworld conquering with the Sifter Isles, with Cabrillo. Um, since then, they have sort of made a peace, and the the area is divided between three different Triton kingdoms. Um, they all have their established territory, and they basically just coexist peacefully with each other. There's no longer Tritons fighting over which part of the Sifter Isles is theirs. A treaty was struck a while ago and now it seems that they're focusing their attention elsewhere although there hasn't been any official uh, declaration of war or any kind of skirmishing activities just the whole world kind of knows that the tritons are eyeing their next overworld target but no one knows who it's going to be uh, because the entire underwater belongs to them you know bigger than the size of all of the world mass put together they have down below and have been uh, living and evolving and building there for as long as anyone can remember. So the Tritons are by far the most dominant um, force in the whole world at this point. They have um, just such dominance over the water and there's so much water in the setting that it's kind of hard for them not to be. Um, so that's, you know... They're starting in the center with the Sifter Isles and Cabrillo and working out from there. Um, and that's going to be kind of a big part of 
at least the start of our setting is the fact that in the Sifter Isles, um, the whole ruling class is made up of Tritons. So um, even though it is a big melting pot of people from everywhere because all the waters and the ocean flow towards the center, um, it's still all overruled by Tritons um, everywhere. You know, there's not all of the old cultures being kind of stamped out and forcefully forgotten um usually it's not really allowed to be taught it's kind of frowned upon and it's stomped out wherever it you know stems up in a problematic way um <coughs> so that's it's kind of an important aspect of the first part of the campaign or i'm pretty sure it's gonna be um so the deal with the Sifter Isles is that all the world's water flows toward it, um, and then it's kind of absorbed in, by the islands and sent down through some process that nobody truly understands yet. There are a lot of theories, um, but basically the water gets fed through to the bottom of the plate where it flows back up along the bottom and then you know, back up to the edges and presumably back to the Sifter Isles to start the whole process over again. Um, the capital city of this place is called Pomodoria. It's ruled by a council of noble-born tritons um, from five different noble houses, um, each with different kind of representatives from the three triton kingdoms from down below. Uh, each of the noble houses controls their own district in the, the capital city, um, and then there's a central neutral district where a lot of the politics are done. It's kind of like the Washington, D.C. It's not really like a state or part of any specific Triton kingdom. It's kind of a neutral zone where they can go and have uh, meetings between all the kingdoms and powers that be in the area. Um, I won't go through all the details of the districts there uh, because I doubt it'll come up. And if it does, then we can go through the details at that time. Uh, but basically, the five main families are Osh the Osharis family, the Jetty family, uh, the Muriel family, the Halameda family, and the Doriana family. Um, and the Doriana family is the one that's going to be most important to us because uh, our starting city, Felgarant, which is sort of a smallish village. Um, the noble that oversees that city is from the Doriana family. So that's going to be um, important for the sake of the story. So the Sifter Isles are basically just a big chain of islands. So everything is kind of a mixture of beach and wetland. Um, all the wildlife has either an aquatic or amphibious aspect to it, if it's not just a bird, which even those are going to be like pelicans or seagulls, you know, those type of annoying ocean birds or whatever. Um, another interesting aspect about the Sifter Isles is that they have amazing uh, bridge building technology. Um, there are some ridiculously massive bridges uh, that dot the Sifter Isles. Uh, just huge, like, multi-mile-long um, structures that connect major islands that are relatively close. Um, and sometimes full-on cities or markets will kind of spring up along the, long, the, the length of the bridge. 
um, and there will be docks, um, like at all the posts that run into the water. There will be a, like a dock at each post. Um, so you can basically dock anywhere along the length of the bridge and then go up to the bridge and travel on foot to wherever those bridges, you know, might connect. Uh, and those are all over the place in the Sifter Isles. So all, there is a lot of traveling by boats, but it's not 100% necess necessary, uh, depending on if you live somewhere where one of these huge bridges has been built. Um, our starting town, Felgarant, is... Uh, <laughs> yes, like parallel parking for boats. Uh, our starting town of Felgarant is at the end of one of these big bridges that connects to sort of a sister city on the other side. Um, across this huge span of water that's called the Narrows. So I do have a myth for the Sifter Isles. Um, it has to do with the emeraldization of the water. Um, the Tritons believe that the changing colors is what brings them power. Uh, because as a people, they've only ever gotten stronger. So the superstitious among them attribute that to the emeraldization of the water. They think that one day when the waters have turned green enough, uh, the Tritons will ascend to like a godhood type state and just take their rightful place as the chosen people of the planet. Um, this myth isn't necessarily believed by all of the high-ranking people, but the, the myth is such a big deal in their culture that it's the reason that um, Triton nobles place a very high value on emeralds, so they often wear a lot of um, emeralds in their jewelry um, to kind of pay homage to that myth about, you know, the Tritons eventually becoming the actual rulers of everything in the world. Alright, so now we can talk about the gods. Um, the two, <laughs> the two oh, gods that I created are Eracoon and Valoria. Eracoon is the god of portals, travel, and wanderlust. Um, it is said that he has this, like, his favorite hobby is to send himself down to the world uh, to take on the form of a mortal. Uh, he then kind of wipes his own memory, sort of on a time delay. So for a few decades, he can just wander, experience new things, explore new areas. Um, oh, that's his other domain. It's exploration. Uh, so anyways, Eracoon, um, that's what he does. He wipes his mind, he explores. Um, he's one of the more passive gods. Uh, obviously, when you make it a habit of just disappearing for a few decades, um, you can't really be relied on. So they don't, they don't make account of him like in the politics of the Pantheon. He comes and goes as he pleases, um, and he's not particularly important in the grand scheme of things. Um, his domains aren't so powerful that his attention is needed at all times. So he can afford to just, you know, take the time to make the trips uh, and do what he likes. Uh, Valoria is kind of the opposite of Eracoon. Um, being the god of time and fate, she has a pretty heavy hand in the way that the world works and what happens. Um, she's always at work maintaining a healthy and constant flow of time. Um, while also doing what you can to sort of nudge mortals in the like correct direction of their fate without being too heavy-handed. Um, some people call Valoria the goddess of luck, but that's kind of a misnomer, because if she intervenes in something, if she grants you a boon, uh, luck has nothing to do with it. It's all about fate, destiny, you know, determinism, all that fun stuff. Um, so those are my two gods. Um, just as a quick aside... 
I don't know if we all did it, but I think we might have. Um, I've created sort of uh, little agents for Valoria that actually roam the world. So I call them Providere's. Um, in cases where Valoria has to be a bit more heavy-handed, um, she sends Providere's down uh, to personally steer uh, a target toward their destiny. If they're being particularly like belligerent, she'll have to send one of these agents down to do the hard work, you know? Uh, in their base form, they basically look like leprechauns, um, but they have the ability to shapeshift into any form that they come across, and they use that ability to uh, kind of figure out the best form that they can take to gain the trust of their target um, so that they can influence them towards their destiny. Um, it could be anything like a Jiminy Cricket figure, or um, what was the dragon from Mulan's name? Mushu? It's it's that sort of thing. They basically show up, they take on a form that their target will trust, and then they try to nudge them in the way that Valoria thinks is best for their destiny. Um, if a Providere fails at their duty, they lose all their powers and their memories, and they just stay stuck in whichever form they took last. So some people say that if an adopted animal is particularly long-lived... Um, they might suspect that it's actually a providere that failed in its duty and is just stuck as a cat or whatever. Just an immortal cat that doesn't know what's going on with its life. That's kind of depressing. Well, he shouldn't have failed. <laughs> so those are my two gods from the Pantheon and, you know, the little agent of Valoria that I created. Um, so let's go ahead and go to Ricky and he can tell us about his gods. Uh, the first one I made was Anya, the goddess of nature and childhood. Uh, she watches over everything that grows, whether it's wildlife, plant life, or like uh, the children of sentience. And she's the only goddess known to breed with mortals. And she does so so that there's always more children to look after, but that she doesn't have to take the risk of one of her domains being left untouched by her godly children when she disappears. So she refuses to go through the normal uh, method of gods reproducing. Uh, the uh, the deity called Gardener and Parent, the same word, the deity that Asimar of the setting are her mortal descendants. And so they use Gardener and Parent as the same word because in Anya's eyes, plants and people have the same uh, importance. Uh, most cultures just know her as the Great Mother, and even non-deities most naming ceremonies for children include a prayer to her attention so that she'll help them stay healthy. Uh, when she appears to mortals, she either is usually a kindly housewife or a uh, playful child, and the only real way to notice is a strange otherworldly motif of like animals and plants on her clothes. And all of the deity have a similar strand in their clothing as an homage to her. And then my other one is Oromora, the god of death and magic, and is also the god that the Obsidian Guardian Paladins swear their oaths to. Um, he powered the original ritual that created the first Obsidian Guardian, and it left him in a sleep for a good long time that he's only recently awoken from, maybe the last century or so. Um, and he was the main driving immortal force between striking back at the Scourge when that was happening. Uh, 
one uh, tradition that has kept since that time is that mortal decree of all dead should be cremated in a basin of black fire that he uh, passed down, sort of Prometheus style. So all of the sort of funerary areas, shrines to him, have this little basin of black fire that's supposed to be used to cremate everybody. Some people don't follow this decree, but obviously he's not happy with it when that happens. And uh, neither are any of his paladins. He doesn't normally appear to mortals personally, like Anya does. Instead, he uses his little minions, the Harvesters. They're like little face spirits, kind of like a... Imagine like those little tissue paper ghosts you made when you were a kid, only with a little scythe. Just like a tiny little chibi Grim Reaper that can turn invisible if they want to. <laughs> they escort souls after death, and so they generally hang around those basins of black fire a lot of the time. And if he needs to contact mortals, he sends one of them to talk in his uh, stead. Uh, the one time he appeared personally was during a large assault of undead on one of his churches. And he just appeared as a huge pillar of that black flames with emerald green eyes. Uh, rather than an actual visible form. And even now, that entire area around that old shrine is just a wasteland of volcanic glass. No, uh, no uh, visible dirt is there. His, uh, they use a image of those black flames as like a decal as his sacred symbol to mark any holy areas or the paladins of the Obsidian Guardian and the like. That's what I have for the gods. Fantastic. Alright, uh, next we have Dolph and the two gods that he created that aren't Chugeti. Okay, uh... The first god is uh, Lupin uh, Periwinkle, who is the god of uh, fire, love, and friendship. Uh, Lupin oversees uh, a large forest of creatures called um, uh, Nixie, or Nixis for uh, singular. But um, uh, from afar, these uh, creatures look like small floating balls of fire. But uh, up close, one could tell that they are actually small pixies engulfed in a bright flame. These creatures are similar to Cupid in that they can spark romance or friendship between people they see, see to be fitting. But um, instead of firing arrows, they instead land on the shoulders of prospective lovers and, um, and put... Uh, put uh, forth the idea of pursuing a relationship with the person directly into their mind. And then, um, the second god is, uh, uh, <laughs> Bruce Baxton the Fourth, who is the god of bureaucracy, government, currency, and light, uh, the busiest of the working gods. Uh, Bruce Baxton the Fourth is constantly at work micromanaging and inventing new protocols. Um, when he makes a major breakthrough, he set, uh, sends the idea to the single most influential person in the world at the time in the form of a dream. He insists that he be referred to by his full name. That is a great god. Alright, next we're going to go to Jesse and the two gods that she created. Alright, so one of my gods is Idal, god of trade, guidance, and avarice. It is said that Adal was once the most beloved god in the Pantheon, 
a generous creature who was quick to give directions, advice, or a helping hand whenever it was needed. But one day, he had a run-in with one of the other gods. The stories are unclear which one. Kuma and Laris are the names that most commonly fill the void when the teller is pressed to guess. Regardless, the tale goes that Idal's most prized possession was stolen from him. It made him angry, bitter, and mistrustful of everyone who comes near. So Idal is thanked when trade is good, or one sense of direction successfully leads them home, but he is just as quickly cursed when a trade goes south, greed leads to bad business decisions, or one gets lost. There are no agents of Idal. He, if you feel like he has come to aid you or come to smite you, that is purely his doing if it really happened that way. He doesn't have, he doesn't send out minions to do his work for him. I like it. Um, my other deity is Cologne, goddess of secrecy, hope, and dreams. When you can't speak the deepest, most desperate desires of your heart, Cologne is the goddess you pray to. It is said she speaks to her followers through their dreams, sending them cryptic messages that lead many to seek out prophets and dream tellers to unravel the mystery. But not all the dreams are good ones. She's also been known to send nightmares to the tellers of secrets or those who knowingly shatter another person's hopes or dreams. Therefore, whenever a follower of Cologne shares a secret or has a secret shared with them, they utter the words, by Cologne's wrath, to seal the oath of secrecy. Um, Cologne is said to have agents, but the stories and the descriptions of what these agents look like and what they do vary so vastly no one is really certain mm -hmm. those are my gods i like it i like it um a quick note about all the gods and the way that they're going to kind of work in the world um there aren't any regional or race specific gods like um any any race or any person from anywhere uh, could worship or you know any or all of the gods depending on the situation um, there are people who are going to be more devout to certain gods you know especially clerics and paladins and the like um, but like it, there could be like a crew of a ship where everybody worships a different god regularly um, there could be people who you know throw shout outs to every god just depending on the situation you know if they need their taxes to come through well they might uh, pray to Bryce if they hope their beer is cold they might even throw one at Chugeti um, the idea is that all the gods are sort of acknowledged and equally seen as important in everyone's life um, it's not just certain regions or races that worship or see the gods as legitimate <laughs> And that's a, an active thing that I'm doing uh, because one of the big blind spots that I've had in the past as a GM is making sure to include religion in my fantasy worlds because I'm a very a-religious person in real life and that really shines through unless I actively do stuff to make it not. And luckily you guys all helped out with that by contributing a bunch of gods to the list, which is awesome. 
All right, so next we'll go to Marie. Tell us about the two gods that you've made for our world. Yeah, boy. Okay, first off is Kuma. The, uh, a pan-like deity with squirrel features whose job is to summon the fall season and bless harvests. However, this, however, there's a myth behind this creature that, uh, he is actually a demoted god because there was a time where Kuma was brought up in some text as Kuma the Sly Trickster, who would sully travelers with misfortune and play pranks on anyone who crossed his path, including other gods. <laughs> and in in one instance, there are people who will say that his being his being. Uh, Demoted was a result of being a key player in Chugeti's creation, an act that angered the other gods, so now he's subjected to having his powers halved and limited to calling forth fall weather and ugh, blessing fall harvests. <laughs> so boring. Uh, did you have any agents? Agents? I guess there's like these little sprites that he, that he has, uh, that, that uh, like scatter around to, uh, do the blessings for the harvest. He just like summons them too, and then they go do their thing, and then go back. So he like gives them seeds, and then they carry the seeds and just like drop them in uh, random places. Like? What what form do they take? Yeah, the sprites. Oh, they they look almost like tumbleweedish. They like like if like if you're like not paying attention off in your peripheral vision, they'd seem like a. Tiny blur out in the, a cornfield or something like that. They're like secretly depositing little seeds that help the, that like help boost harvest. I like it. They don't really have a true form, just other than it's like a fuzz. <laughs> like imagine those little uh, those little uh, fuzzy black things that were in all, all those Ghibli movies. The dust sprites. Yeah, the dust yes. the dust sprites. Yeah. Okay, my other one is known as Sukan, known also as the world fish. It's a, simmer, it's a shimmery, gargantuan-sized ancient catfish that just lives, like, basically up at the bottom of the plate. The job is to act as the filter for the ocean and sift out particles that infect the world in a terrible way. It's like anything that, like, would, like, damage a specific plant or creature. It just, like, shuffles on in and just, like, eats that. Sukan's domains are wisdom and medicine. The the little reefs that surround the land can be pulled out of the ground and and like uh, crushed into a really potent healing salve. So they believe whole wholeheartedly that Sukan is the one responsible for most of, if not all, the cures. Because of their uh, this full found belief, they they kind of have this uh, bout with the Triton since they like believe something and something else is responsible for that true right the tritons believe that the sifter isles are what sifts the water and you know cleanses it before sending it back out to the edges of the plate whereas the people that believe in the world fish uh, they think that the world fish is the one that does the filtering right mm -hmm. and, yep and seemingly 
if the world fish is the reason that the water is getting green, then it has nothing to do with the Tritons becoming all powerful. So I would I could see why there would be a lot of conflict there. Can I just say I love the idea of a world fish? I don't know why. Just the whole <laughs> idea sounds fabulous to me, and I approve. So last but not least, we have Tony and his gods. All right. So the gods I made are Laris, the god of storms, thieves, and charity. Um, this god's tenets are not taught in churches. Instead, they are taught on street corners to anyone who will listen. The priesthood particularly cares for orphans and the homeless. Um, and they preach that selfish gathering of wealth to the detriment of others is considered blasphemy. However, taking from the greedy to give to the unfortunate is considered sacred. He's very Robin Hood-esque. Um, and then the other god I created is Lintas, the goddess of spring, new beginnings, and sea monsters. Lintas believes that people are at their best when tested and traveling down paths that they wouldn't choose for themselves. Her followers worship the spring as a chance to begin again and pray to her at seaside shrines to spare them the attention of the great leviathans. Her, like, avatars in the world are a combination of the leviathans themselves and these, like, little, um, like, almost fairy-like type things that flitter around the leviathans and always appear, like, floating to the surface um in uh like before a leviathan comes up and like usually if you have a like an alert spotter they can see these lights with enough like lead time to start getting people like moving prepared for a leviathan breach um but not always um, and she's kind of bad news on that side, but it's never malicious. She, she just wants to shake things up, basically. She's a catalyst of change. One of the, like, original gods, or maybe, because it might not have been one of her parents, it might have been one of her ancestors um was the 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 dragon goddess Tikalis um and when she came to this world she created the spire um as a place to roost and like do all of her godly things from because she didn't like the idea of being in some sort of celestial plane, she wanted to live on the world. Um, and it, the, the myth is that her body is still up there. Um, and that the first thing she created 
once she got settled in, was like mortal dragons, like are pictured in most fantasy settings. Um, but when she died, those dragons, like that portion of her domain, didn't get transferred properly into her offspring. And they they turned into the Leviathans. So the giant like monsters that live in the deep are are like our analogs of dragons. Yeah, you heard that right. We don't got no dragons in our Dungeons of Dragons <laughs> world. <laughs> <laughs> we got labyrinths and leviathans, bitches. No dragons here, right, Malleus? Well, I'm I'm not saying necessarily that every single dragon turned. There could be a dragon. Yeah, we just got a smog and a few dragons somewhere. The saddest, if loneliest. The GM... <laughs> yeah, if if like the GM wanted to have like the loneliest dragon that's One been around for a mu millennia, he's just got to go to um to Rav chug the entire volcano until he's drunk enough to fuck a whale and then he doesn't have to worry about the fact that he's the last dragon (laughs) (laughs) just like anybody else just get drunk enough to fuck a whale fucking hell my head (laughs) that's right I don't need to be drunk to do that 